instead of taking the time to read the text, we're going to kind of just kind of work slowly through the text all together. Uh, so let me pray, and then we'll jump right into it. Uh, God, we thank you again for your word. We trust even right now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and attend your word. Um, God, we thank you that uh, there are promises in your word that say that your word revives the soul. Um, it makes wise the simple. So God, even as we consider Ruth and Boaz, um, God, they're examples of character. God, we pray that we would learn something of their character and how they fear you and walk in your ways, even amidst some really dicey, <laughs> some really dicey moments. Um, so, Jesus, we just ask, even right now, uh, just for your help, and we pray that you would bring this truth to bear upon our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God is a God of rest. Anybody need a little rest? You just lost an hour, right, last night. It's been a busy uh, week. I don't know about you, but when it comes to this idea of rest, man, it's just like, oh God, thank you. Thank you that you are a God who, who actually says, I bring rest to my people. It's what Jesus says, right? He doesn't come to me, all you who are heavy laden, weary, and I'm going to give you rest. This is the God that we serve. Uh, this came to like light for me even yesterday, because when God says that he is a God of rest who brings rest to his people, the idea of rest is not just like, oh, I'm going to give you some sleep. It's not just that. He gives to his beloved sleep, as the psalmist would say. So it's definitely this God who gives us rest does give us sleep. He does give us physical, if you will, comfort, strength. But it's also much more than that. The idea of rest in scripture has the idea that God actually wants to give us a place we can call home. You know, home, that, that place of love, security, and trust, that place of like felt belonging. It's a deep existential like idea. It's, it, it's something that you deeply feel. It's, it's to feel as though you belong. It's to feel as though you're at home. This is the idea of biblical rest. God is a God who brings this kind of rest to his people. So even yesterday, you know, it was Jabari coming over, and, like, I didn't go pick him up, so I was doing some work at home, and when I heard they're on their way home, I find myself going to the door, looking outside, are they here yet, are they here yet, and, and, and no, they're not here yet, and I find myself going back and looking at the window, is he here yet, is he here yet, and, and I think in a real, the Lord was like, hey, this is what I mean, Dan. It's like the, the, uh, the father of the prodigal son who's looking out on a daily basis, my son coming home, is he going to know my rest? Like, this is the heart of God for his people. The heart of God is that he's, he, he won't rest. And this is a real reality. We see Jesus even say some of this kind of stuff. God will not rest until he brings you rest. Jesus will say, it's a strange moment, but he's with his disciples uh, in the upper room. They're, they're hanging out together. 
Jesus does like the first communion table, if you will, you know, the new covenant. And they're hanging out and he's breaking bread and they're drinking, do this in remembrance of me kind of a thing. Uh, and, and yet Jesus will say in that moment, I will not eat again until I see you in glory. Like Jesus is saying, I'm going to fast until we're sitting again at a table of belonging, right? In other words, it communicates the fact that God is not just kind of sitting back, waiting for time to kind of expire so that he eventually comes back and takes us home. The idea is that God is working on our behalf. He is not resting until he finally brings us full rest. Now, we see this even more specifically throughout God's word. For, for instance, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It's up there on the screen. It says this, in love, God predestined us for, what's the term? Adoption. The idea is he's, he's bringing us home. We did not belong, but he's bringing us home. He's making space for us to find true biblical rest. He's making us a part of the family, and he's brought us into his family. He's adopted us as children through Jesus Christ. It's all come at the cost of Christ going to that cross and being raised again. The, this, this is the gospel. When we talk about the gospel, this is what we're talking about. We once did not belong. We once did not have rest. Remember, Just remember what it was like before Jesus. Oh, my heart's going every direction, trying to find satisfaction, trying to find rest, and never finding rest. God says, no, I am the one who brings rest. I adopt you as children through Jesus Christ. Or Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. This sounds a lot more kind of like the story of Ruth, as we'll see in a moment. It says, Ephesians chapter 2, 12, it says, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You didn't belong, now you belong. Why? Because Christ, it, the picture is like a lasso. He, he threw his blood over you, and he brought you into himself, and he provides you a place of belonging. Our God is a God who brings rest to his people. So we could say it this way. We were like Ruth. We did not belong. We were a Moabite, if you will. We were like Ruth, but through Christ, we were brought into a family. We were given a place of belonging. So if we could say it this way, that Christ is our rest. If you have Christ, you have something real of God's rest. But also, Christ is faithfully bringing us home where all things will be made new again. So we could say it this way, Christ is our rest, but also Christ will not rest until he has brought us safely home. You get that idea? Christ is our rest. He is our home. He is our place. Now, he is, he is the reason that we now belong in God's family, but he's also doing the work. He's preparing a place for us 
he will not rest until he has brought us safely home. Now, when it comes to this idea of rest, Ruth chapter 3 is all about rest. Remember, Ruth and Naomi have come back to Bethlehem with two desperate needs. One is food, and the other is family, rest, home. Last week, we saw the providence of God at work in their lives. And remember, this, this term providence is really important that we pick this up and remind ourselves what exactly we're talking about when we talk about God's providence. God's providence could be defined as this, as God's hidden hand at work in our lives. You may be aware of a few of the ways God's at work in your lives, God's at work in a thousand more ways in your life. And when it came to Ruth and Naomi, they didn't necessarily see God at work. They came back to Bethlehem really with nothing, with just desperate need, food and family. But as the curtain then closed on chapter 2, and this is the way it's supposed to feel. It's almost, you, you could see it as like a theater piece where you have these different scenes that are playing out. And as, as chapter 2 closes, the curtain closes on chapter 2, we've seen God providentially at work in ways that Ruth and Naomi could have never guessed, right? In chapter 2, we see that God provides food for them. And it's incredible. And it's not just like, well, here's a few grain, you know, pieces of grain to kind of get you through the next day. It is lavish giving. It is lavish providential handiwork at play in the life of Re Ruth and Naomi. God is working on behalf of Ruth and Naomi in this situation. He has provided them food, but again, as the curtain is closing, it's not only that there's been food that's provided, but there's something of incredible potential here because we were tipped off to the reality that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. That's a huge thing. Because according to Old Testament law, a kinsman redeemer could buy back, and in Ruth and Naomi's case, could buy back a Limelech's field and potentially even take Ruth as his wife to provide an offspring. Remember, offspring was like, it's like re a retirement plan. Like if you have kids, then like the parents know that they're going to be taken care of in the future. That's the idea of having rest. That's the idea of having family. It's the idea of having a place to call home. So the curtain closes on chapter 2. God providing food, but also setting the stage for this incredible potential of maybe even providing family. Otherwise known in chapter 3, as you'll see, as rest. As the curtain then closes on chapter 2, it's opening on chapter 3. And the first thing we see is Naomi. Look at it, verse 1. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth. In chapter 2, Ruth is doing the action. She's putting the plan together. Chapter 3, Naomi's doing it. Right? And what does Naomi say? She says, my daughter, should I not seek what? Rest. Should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you. Folks, this, this, this is the whole point. Naomi is concerned that Ruth would find a home. 
that she would find a place of belonging, that she would find deep soul satisfaction in actually having a husband, having a home, and having a family. So Ruth now is challenged by Naomi to go pursue that rest. Now, as a good uh, mother-in-law, right, what does she do? She hatches a plan. And, and this, is, this is supposed to be, in a real way, kind of humorous. This, and as you will see, it's, inc- it's incredibly dicey. Right? And it's meant to felt, feel that way. Because what does Naomi do? She, she begins to speak this plan. Verse 2, is not Boaz our relative? Is he not the guy, the kinsman redeemer? And then she says, behold, it's like, hey, Ruth, check this out. Here's an opportunity. Boaz is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. The threshing floor immediately in the mind of the ancient reader would be like, oh, man. Like, this is a place that is outside of the city, secluded, probably out on some, like, plateau. So it's at a distance from all the watching eyes. So you begin to see already, okay, Naomi, this seems a little little dicey. Like, what are you going to propose? And what does she propose? Verse 3, this is stunning language. This is like jaw-dropping language for the ancient reader. Naomi tells Ruth to wash and anoint yourself. This is like honeymoon language. Go get ready to be married. Go get ready for relational intimacy. Go wash and anoint yourself. Now, we actually see something of this even in God's uh, interaction with his people. He'll, he'll refer to his relationship to his people like a marriage, and, and he will actually say, go wash and anoint yourself because I'm going to make a vow to you. We're getting married. Right? And, and so even in the storyline of Scripture, we see God us- utilizing some of this exact language. And so this is all about the wedding night. This is all about preparation. There's all kinds of freighted expectation into that command to go wash and anoint yourself. But that's not only what's there. King David, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, will use this exact same phrase when he has lost a child and he's grieved. But now he's come to a point where he says, okay, I have to move on through my grief, right? So he, he's saying, I have grieved, I have wept, I have been still, but now it's time to move on in some sense. And so he washes and anoints himself. He goes and worships the Lord and says, now it's time to get back to work. So what Naomi is proposing to Ruth is not only, hey, uh, it's, it's time for the wedding night, but it's also to say, in, in a figurative way, uh, Ruth, are you ready to take off your old wedding band? Are, are, are you ready to set this aside to now start moving through your grief? Are, are you ready to take that step? Right? And so this is, this is, this is not just 
Exodus does not just have a bunch of sexual overtones to it. It also has these, this, this deep decision now that Ruth must, m- must consider. Will she now move through her grief? What else does Naomi say? She says, put on your cloak. On one hand, uh, the idea is, hey, you're going to want to stay warm because it's going to be a long night for you. And you, you freight in all the, the suggestive stuff there that's intended, right? So on one hand, stay warm. It's going to be a long night. But also then, like, don't let anyone see you as you're going out there. The text is dicey. Like, this is like general hospital kind of, like, soap stuff. This is kind of like, whoa, what is happening in these moments? Naomi, is this really the wisest thing for you to be saying these things? you got to be kidding me, right? And it gets worse. A little bit, not only put on your cloak, but a little bit further down the line there, it says, don't make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. So now there's strategy involved, like almost manipulation taking place. Like let the guy eat and drink. Let let him be satisfied. Verse 4, but when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. The idea is like, don't get the wrong guy. It's dark out there. There's no street lights. It's It's only moonlight, and so it's like, don't get the wrong guy. And then, and the word then in verse 4, like our our modern translation would be like carpe diem kind of a moment. It's like, then it's time to pounce. Then it's time to seize the day, right? And what are you supposed to do? Go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. If your jaw isn't dropped already, your jaw would be dropping in these moments as an ancient reader. This is a Hebrew expression, this idea of feet, right? It's a Hebrew expression that is discreet, but it's not just talking about feet. It's not just talking about legs. It's everything south of the waist. So she is saying, Ruth, go uncover Boaz from the waist down, Lie down, and he will tell you what to do. This is where, like, the ancient reader, like, as they're reading this, they're blushing. Like, you've got to be kidding me that this is happening. And Ruth agrees to do it. It's, it's stunning, not, not only just in the risk that this is taking on in terms of pursuing a man for marriage, but it's also now all the grief that she has been carrying and the loss that she's experienced. She's, she is making a decisive action in all of this to move on. And, and the beauty of the text is like the stuff that we see in the text is the stuff that we, we would have to sit back and say God's aware of it all. He's aware of the burdens that she's carrying. He's aware of the grief that she's carrying. He's aware of even the dicey stuff that Naomi is calling Ruth into. And so Ruth agrees to do all that Naomi says. She takes this courageous action to set aside this wedding band and to pursue rest, to pursue a home, to pursue a future with another. Now, Verse 6, Ruth jumps into action. She puts this plan into action. She goes down to the f- 
threshing floor. She waits till Boaz has eaten and drunk. And it says, the text says that his heart is merry. Doesn't mean that he's, you know, sloppy drunk or anything like that. He's just not hangry, right? It's the idea that he's had a Snickers bar. He's chill. He's in a good moment right now. And, and so this is, this is wonderful. My, kid, my kids even know, like, they're not going to come to dad when he's in a bad mood and ask for stuff. Right? They're going to pick and choose the moment where he's satisfied and chill and happy, and then they're going to come and make their proposal. This is the same case here. It is waiting for him to be satisfied, not interrupting him in his work, not interrupting him in his eating or drinking, and she waits until he is merry, and till verse 7, oh, perfect conditions, until he's lying down at the end of the grain pile. It's like, uh, there's just no better scenario. This is perfect. Everything has worked out the way it should work out. He's eaten, he's happy, and he's on the backside of the grain pile, which means he's not only at the threshing floor, but now he's ultra secluded. Perfect moment. So what does she do? She goes, uncovers him, and lays next to him. Then, verse 8, midnight comes. Boaz is feeling the cold breeze now. And he is startled. He turns over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he says then, who are you? Right? He, just think about this moment. He's, he's in the fog, if you will, of, of, of a late night sleep. He's waking up to this shocking reality that he doesn't have any clothes on from the waist down, right? And, and he sees this figure now laying next to him. He's startled. He's freaking out. What in the world is happening? Who are you? And Ruth responds, it's Ruth, your servant. The, the word servant is not the same word that she uses in, I think, chapter 2, verse 13. It's a different word that's used for servant. It has the idea of relational connectivity, that, that she is saying, I am here to serve you. Right? It's just getting more and more dicey. More, it's getting more and more suggestive. You say, man, should this stuff even be in the Bible? Right? Well, it's here. So we're, we got to do something with it. Right? So she says, it's Ruth. I'm here to serve you, more or less. But then... It, it, it goes immediately. She, she doesn't lose a moment here. Verse 9, she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This is a blatant, like, Sadie Hawkins moment, where she's just taken the responsibility to say, Boaz, marry me. Spread, take take the, the garment that I've uncovered, and now in a in a real sense, she's saying, put me under your covers. It's a marriage proposal. Even Jesus, or well, even in the Old Testament, God will say of his relationship to his people, Ezekiel 16, verse 8, he says, when I pass by you, he says, behold, you were of age for love, and I spread the wings or the corner of my garment over you. I made my vow to you and entered into covenant with you. 
The idea is even God will use this for his relationship with his own people, us, by the way, right? That God has brought us into this marital-like relationship, this vow, and even God uses the, the terminology of casting his wings, casting his garment over us and bringing us into this vow of marriage. That's what Ruth is saying. She's saying, can I come under your covers? So in these moments, Ruth has just courageously, I mean, this, I'm thinking of all the wrong words to use in this moment, but she has made such a risky move to make this stunning proposal to, Bo to Boaz. She is courageously chosen to move forward in her grief. She is now taking great courage to propose to Boaz at massive risk to herself. And now, just as Naomi says, she waits for Boaz's instructions. Courage. Courage to pursue rest. Now what we see is Boaz's response. Notice what happens. He immediately, it's, it's incredible. You think of how risque this moment is. You, you, you see all the negative stuff, and the language is intended to be there, and we'll see more clearly in a moment why, why that's the case. But it, but it is, the sexual overtones are dense and thick in this language. But notice how Boaz responds. He sees that it's Ruth. He recognizes this stunning moment of being proposed to, and here's his response, verse 10. May you be blessed by the Lord, Yahweh, my beloved daughter. Stop, pause. Think about what's happening. This, this, the text is fraught with, with these sexual overtones. And instead of responding lustfully, instead of responding with some sort of, well, like, I'm going to get what I can get out of this moment, he brings God into it. This is incredibly important. You think about the temptations that you face in those, those startling moments. It's the middle of the night for crying out loud. And, and this is his response. Oh, may the Lord Yahweh bless you. This is strange. It's strange to say the least. But something that we see of Boaz in these moments is that he is a man of character put all the dicey moments you know, in front of him, and he's going to be a man of character. He's going to get God to the center of every situation that he encounters. Now Boaz goes on to state, and, it, and it's all with this God awareness. He says, you have made this last kindness greater than the first. The word kindness, again, is the Hebrew word for hesed. It's the word that God will use for his vow, his covenant vows, to his people. It's the idea. We don't even have an, a right English word to just directly translate it because it's so rich with meaning. The idea of hesed or this idea of kindness is this steadfast, unwavering, unaltering, lavish kindness. And so Boaz is saying of Ruth, you showed Yahweh-like kindness first by supporting Ruth or Naomi through her loss. Boaz is recognizing in these moments it's not just a sexual opportunity. He, he's, he's actually seeing character in her. 
and saying, the Lord bless you because you've made this last kindness greater than the first. The first kindness was that he had mentioned it earlier that, that she has walked with Naomi through her great loss and pain. Ruth didn't have to do that, but she clung, chapter one, to Naomi. She would not leave Naomi's side. But now, Boaz says, you are showing Yahweh-like kindness by asking for me to marry you. So it cuts through all the diciness of this moment, right? And he is saying, no, this is, this is a God moment for us, for us, right? He sees very clearly that Ruth is not only proposing for her sake. She's not acting in lust. She's acting still not only for the, for the good of her own sake in that relationship with Boaz, but also for Naomi's sake because she knows that this kinsman redeemer, Boaz, can not only help her, but can help Naomi. Naomi, through Ruth, from Boaz, could have a family. Naomi could have rest. Do you see what Ruth is doing? <laughs> She's walking this out not only for her own good, but she's walking it out for the good of Naomi. She is selfless in that sense. It's only through Boaz that Naomi's line could be redeemed. And so Ruth is making these steps because she has shown kindness to Naomi at one point, and now she's showing it again, even at personal risk and rejection to herself. It's incredible, and Boaz sees it. So verse 11, Boaz promises to do what he can specifically because he says it's such a beautiful thing. He says, because all the townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Remember in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth comes after, anybody remember? Proverbs, right? So we see this word worthy woman is the exact same word that Proverbs 31 uses in verse 10 which states this, an excellent wife, a worthy woman who can find she is far more precious than jewels. It's the same, same expression. And then the word townsman that Boaz uses, all the townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. The word townsman is the same word used to transla translated gates in Proverbs 31, verse 30 and 31. It says this, charm is deceitful. You, you, you look at this, oh, there, there seems to be some deceitful things going on. Well, actually, actually not. There's character being brought to bear in this risque moment. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. The word gates, the same as townsmen. Boaz says, all the townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Boaz is, is, is just so thrilled, and he's highlighting the fact that she's a woman of character. She's a Proverbs 31 woman. So it's Boaz who's getting God into the center of this moment, and it's these words of praise that is it's meant to help the reader see this terrible, sketchy moment, yet their faith-filled character in Yahweh kind of rising above it all. Do you see? Now, for the ancient reader, 
the tensions are felt in all of this. This is not only a dicey moment, but what their mind would be going to in these moments is, is to where the Moabite clan began in the first place. The Moabite clan began with two women scheming to find a child, right? To establish for themselves some sort of offspring. So what do they do? Genesis chapter 19, it's nasty. They make Lot drunk, their dad, and then seduce him into impregnating them. That's where Moab has begun, right? The child is named Moab, and the whole clan comes now from this one particular moment. Two women trying to scheme a way to get an offspring. What do we have here? Two women <laughs> trying to figure out how to get rest, how to find a family. For the ancient reader, I mean, it's a trembling moment. Ruth, don't, don't do what the world would expect of you. Don't do what is stereotypical of the Moabite. Don't be the seductress in these moments. Don't be the one working angles to get some sort of lustful temptation fulfilled. No, don't take it into your own hands. Don't, don't lean on your own understanding. Don't try to be wise in your own eyes. It's the time of the judges, right? Everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. Oh, Ruth, don't do this. That's, that's, the, that's what's felt for the ancient reader. Don't be like those two women in Genesis 19. So why is it then that this is such a different scenario? It's because their godly character rises above. It is dicey as it can get. And yet, what makes this moment so good, it's almost like the moment is redeemed by their character, right? The courage, there, there's this courage to take this risk, but now there's this character that attends it, which makes way for God's provincial hand to move in ways beyond what Boaz and Ruth could have even thought in these moments. Folks, I, I, I tend to stand back and, and think, like, God is sovereign. Let's just put that out there. God's sovereign. What he's decreed will come to pass. All things are going to be made anew again through Jesus. Like, y your ups and downs in your life can never, like, get in the way of God's ultimate purposes. But when it comes to God's providential blessing in your life, we can get in the way. That's what the book of Proverbs is all about. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will direct your path. And here's the blessing that comes. It will be refreshment to your flesh and renewal to your bones. So in a real way, trusting in the Lord, not leaning on our own understanding, ensuring that, no, I'm not going to give up in my character in these moments. No, I'm going to get God into the center of these things. No, we're going to walk this out according to his purposes, as dicey as it might get. It's, it's in those moments that they're aligning their hearts with the providential work of God in their lives. Now God's blessing can come. If they took advantage of the moment selfishly, they could have made a mess of this whole thing. But what do we see is that their character now rises above and it gives way for God's providential hand to work in ways beyond what Boaz and Ruth could have ever imagined. 
Now, does God work despite our failing? Thank God, yes, right? But on the flip side of the coin, don't forget, God wants you to be fruitful. He wants you to be fruitful. He wants to shower blessing upon you, right? And he does call us then. He calls us to not to lean on our own understanding, not to give way to fleshly desires, but to every step, trust in him, look to him as what he provides, and let character lead the way so ultimately God's provincial hand can bring blessing upon us. So not only does Boaz get God into the center of the moment, not only does he praise Ruth for being a woman of character herself, but then he states in verse 12 that he intends to play this out according to God's law. He doesn't give in to the temptations of the moment. He doesn't just kind of like, hey, well, I want you as a wife, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut the angles to get there. He says, the law that God has laid out for me, I'm going to walk it out. Again, he's demonstrating character in these moments because, verse 12, it's come to know that there's another redeemer out there. There's another relative who's closer in line who would get first dibs, if you will, on buying back a Limelech's field and potentially taking Ruth as his wife. And so Boaz says, let him redeem you. But if he doesn't, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Boaz clearly isn't believing just in chance in these moments. He's saying, this is what God has said. This is the law that he's put before us. We are going to work this out and trust him with however this goes. More character displayed. I mean, just, just think about it. You know, the, the, the illustration... Uh, for, for me, came to mind um, when we bought a car. And this may, like, go against your grain a little bit. We live in Philly. We bought a car. And, of course, the question comes, like, how much are we going to place on the transaction receipt because you know you're going to be taxed on that? So you sit back, and it's like, hmm. And even the person who's selling us the car, Looking at one of them, hmm, that would save us a couple thousand dollars. That would be nice. Ah, we could use that money for this and that and blah, blah, blah. And then we, the conversation was, uh, well, the interest rates are going to be crazy on that car loan. <laughs> right? And so in those moments, it's not just, hey, we can take this thing into our own hands and gain the benefit. It's to say, God, your law has been clear. Like, you, it, you, you haven't placed any qualification. So now this, this moment becomes a moment of faith. Like, we can manipulate the system and get what we want, or we can walk by God and say, God, shower your blessing upon us as you deem fit. So it was one of those moments. I don't like giving money to the state more than you do, Right? But in that moment, it's, it's to say, okay, God, we're going to trust you with another check, right? Ugh, it hurts. But in that moment, it's faith. What Boaz is doing is the same thing. This is the law. And, and I could manipulate this. I could, I could work it so I get the benefit of it. But what we're going to do is we're going to let the law be the law because God has laid it down. 
and we're going to trust God with however this plays out. But he says, if the other redeemer rejects the opportunity as the Lord lives, we're hooking up. This is going to be good, right? So Boaz clearly isn't, you know, kind of believing in chance. He's not manipulating the moment. He's walking again by faith. It's character, and it's incredible. It's incredible. He could manipulate the whole thing. But he's resting in the providential hand of Yahweh, saying more or less, we are going to play this out according to God's law, leaving the outcome in God's hand. Now, he tells, he tells Ruth from there, remain overnight, which seems even more like, oh, man, what are they doing now? Uh, but again, it's like it's the time of the judges. She doesn't want her walking home at nighttime, putting herself in harm's way. And so verse, I think, believe it's 14 he, he does tell her not to speak of having come out to the threshing floor. This ain't going to be, this ain't going to go over well for the folks who've watched. It's, it's a town, which means there's plenty of gossip. We don't need to feed that gossip train. We know what God is accomplishing in, uh, in our midst. So, hey, go home, be quiet uh, about it. But then finally, before he sends her home, what does he do? He measures out six measures of grain which is potentially 80 pounds. He helps her hoist it up on her head, shoulder, however, however it is, and, and sends her home. The idea of these, the six measures of grain, uh, most believe that it's, 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 his, it's his way of saying, yep, uh, I, I am going to be pursuing your rest. Seven is the number of completion, so it's almost like, a, hey, I'm going to give you six because I intend to give you that seven. I'm going to be working on your behalf to bring all of this to a final point of completion. And that's exactly what he does. So to, to brush things ahead, uh, Ruth heads back to Naomi in the morning. Naomi, mother-in-law, she's got questions. How did you fare, she says in verse 16. Literally, in the Hebrew, it, it states, what's your name? Did you get married last night? Did your name change? Are you now Miss Boaz, right? Th that's the idea. Who are you as she walks in? What is your name? And Ruth tells her kind of what transpired. And then in verse 17, she says, by the way, here's this 80 pounds of grain. Boaz doesn't want you to be empty. It's incredible. Empty is like the antonym of, of, of rest. It's the very opposite. It's the idea of having no nothing in your hands. It's the idea of having no place of belonging. And Boaz is saying, no, I want your mother-in-law not to be empty. And so it's the same word that no Naomi will use in chapter 1 for how God has dealt with her. She has come back empty to Bethlehem. Boaz is this redeemer figure, this Yahweh figure. He's saying, I will never let you be empty. It's Boaz's commitment to ensure that rest is known both for Ruth and Naomi. Now, as things kind of close out in chapter 3, Naomi says, it, it's a startling word. It, she says, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. It's a crucial statement in, in these moments. Ruth has courageously risked it all 
She has maintained her character. She has maintained her integrity in these moments. And now she has to be content to wait. Ugh. <laughs> the term wait is used throughout scripture, and it doesn't refer to this kind of passivity sitting back. It, it, it is a faith-filled term. The term wait has the idea of be at a place of true contentment, knowing that the Redeemer God has worked, is working, and will work for you. God's on the move, in other words. Therefore, wait. That's the nature of the word. And therefore, it's exactly what Ruth is doing now. She's waiting for her Redeemer, her kinsman Redeemer, Boaz. He has worked, he is working, and he will ensure that she will come to a final place of rest. And so the idea is sit contently. Boaz is working on your behalf. Now, from there, chapter 3, curtain closes. So it's, it's like the movement of the story. All of a sudden, you know, you're watching a show or a movie, and it goes black, and those God-forbidden words show up on the screen. To be continued. Like, I want to know what happens in these moments, right? That's what's happening here in verse 18. The curtain is closing, the screen is going black, and it's to be continued. You sit back as the ancient reader, and, and you're brought in to this point in place of like your discontentment that the story hasn't finished. The rule that's being shared here is be patient. And it's closing out and you're saying, I'm not patient. I want to see what happens. And it's the whole, you're supposed to, your heart's supposed to be drawn into these moments, right? You're supposed to feel something of what Ruth is feeling, this anticipation. I want to see how this thing works out. Right? It's the same thing that's supposed to be felt for the reader. Like, no, I don't want to see to be continued. I want to see how this thing works out. But it's supposed to help us see our own hearts in these moments. That we are oftentimes not content to wait on the true Redeemer God who has worked, is working, and will work for us. Right? I want what I want now. I need to see this situation play out correctly now. God, like you as my redeemer, I, I want you to work. And, and, and I'm, I feel like I just keep on waiting. And yeah, I kind of know that you're going to work for me. But it's this call to a place of contentment. Are you content with the fact that in God's providence, his hidden hand at work in your life, that he has worked? He is working, and he will work. Are you, are you okay with resting contently with that? Just taking the breath and saying, all right, I'll be still. I'll be still and know that you are God. I'll wait on you. Folks, when it comes down to it, this story of rest is a story about courage. Ruth demonstrated some incredible courage. But then it's this character. It's Ruth and Boaz demonstrating incredible character. Character rises above all the diciness. But then it's this call to contentment. Are you content? You just know that God is working on your behalf. You see, for us as believers, Jesus, he is our true redeemer, never leaves us empty-handed. And 
He is the one who will not rest until he brings us home. It's true that in Christ we, we have rest, but in another sense we are waiting like Ruth for a true rest, for the true full realization of that time and place where all things are made new and we, we, we stand in this perfect place of belonging with Christ our Savior. That day is coming. And so just like Ruth's life, it's this move and shake of, of circumstances which demands courage, it demands character, it demands at times contentment. It's the same thing for us, our life, up and down and the turns and twists and the circumstantial difficulties. And it all then requires, as we are waiting, it requires something of courage in certain moments. It requires something of godly character in other moments. And at other times, it's wait and be still before the Lord, for he is fighting for you. Folks, when it comes down to it, I just wanted to end. And I know we're going long. Um, courage, character, contentment. Courage, character, contentment. We know that Jesus is our rest. He will not rest until he brings about rest for us. And yet, in the interim, courage. I want to pray for those in closing who may have, like, fear. You just fear, like... You fear stepping into the purposes of the Lord. You, 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 you f um, one of the things that's come up recently is even fear. There's fear to pray in public. It's come up a handful of times. There's fear to just bless one another in prayer, like as a congregation. And I, I fear getting up here on a Sunday morning, so I feel you. You know, when it comes to publicly praying or testifying, there's fears that can come into play, but it demands. Demands courage, it demands faith, it demands risk. And so I just want to pray into that. And, and specifically for some who've, man, you've gone through it. The grief has been felt. It is a, it is a burden to carry. That as, as God says, all right, here's the path forward, that we would have the courage, even under our grief, to start walking forward in his purposes. To perhaps, as it were, take off the band say, all right, I'm trusting you for whatever new thing you have ahead. Um, so I want to pray for those who, who may need courage in this season. I also want to pray for those who need character, <laughs> right? It's like, man, like you're, 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 you're working the angles in the moments to kind of like make things work out for yourself when it's to say, all right, what is God's law? What is God's purposes? I'm going to stick to that. I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. I'm going to embrace his purposes, and what the outcome is his. I'm not going to be holding on to trying to manufacture an outcome. No, I'm going to let God actually produce what he wants to produce in my obedience. Right? So I just want to pray for those who feel like, man, I just need, a, I need character in that direction. And then finally, some of you are in a waiting game. Um, it's contentment. It's to know contentment. It's the, your heart's desire, oh God, would you come and like meet this need or, or open this way or like topple over that wall. Like, God, like show me, take me forward. And he's still calling you to just be at rest, be content. And folks, I know the contentment, um, the scenarios, the, the situations of 
of that contentment can feel altogether burdensome as well. Because it's just serving, 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 doing, 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 and still waiting, 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 and God just doesn't seem to be like taking me into the next step. But I, I, I would believe that he'd want to encourage your heart that he has worked, he is working, and he will work on your behalf to bring you rest. So I want to pray those three things, and then uh, we'll close out with a final song. God, thank you. I think even in these in these moments of our lives, um, God, that you're not distant, that you're providentially at work. If if the black light of our life was put on, your fingerprints would be everywhere. And so, God, even for those who need courage in this season, God, we pray against the fears and the apprehensions to perhaps speak publicly or to pray publicly or to just go blast someone else in, in the congregation. God, would we move at the impulse of your love? Spirit of God, I pray that you would give us even um, a sense of compassion and love for one another that just can't be held back, that we would be compelled by your life. God, I go pray, even as I may stumble over my words or say the wrong things, I got to go bless my brother or my sister. I got to go pray for them. God, whatever it is, or maybe it's to tell testimonies, God, take this fear away. And if there's uh, old religiosity that is, is, is stimulating that fear, oh God, put it to death. We don't want to live according to religiosity, feeling as though if we step out, we may be in some way condemned or rejected or some way guilt may be thrown upon us. No, we want to walk in freedom. We want to walk in freedom. So, Spirit of God, bring it about. Where you are, there is freedom. So, Spirit of God, come, grant courage and boldness, even as you do to your people in the book of Acts. You come with supernatural courage and boldness proclaim truth to bless others. God, work in that way. For those who carry in this particular season deep grief, uh, Jesus, you're so good that your, your yoke is easy. You come alongside of us and your shoulders are big and broad and they carry all our concerns. So Jesus would would your broad shoulders be felt for those who are feeling just the burden of grief? And Spirit of God, I do pray that you would grant clarity. Thank you that you give us time. You give us time to be in our grief. You don't push us too quickly. But God, you, you do call us to then step forward in our grief. So I just pray that you you would bring about those particular times and moments where you're 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 calling your kids toward yourself and you're saying, all right, it's time to begin moving forward. There's more that is is in store for you. There's more blessing to be had, more fruitfulness to be born for the kingdom. So God, show, give direction, I pray. God, for those who are we, we need that reminder of character. We need the flesh to be put to death. We need, we need to let go of the reins of our, our, our life, God, to just rest in you, to, to act in faith, and just saying, oh, God, like, you, you determine the outcome. We will walk according to your purposes, according to what you've said, but we leave the outcome to you. So, God, we, we place our hearts before you. God, I pray that you would uproot even some of those sinful desires of wanting to just 
make sure the, the, the end outcome is what we want. Let us be good with you. You're our first and foremost prize. You're enough. And so let our hearts find you enough and therefore worthy of walking this out according to your purposes and your law. And finally, God, for those in a season of waiting, for God, bring comfort, wave upon wave of comfort to their souls in these times. God, strengthen their hands, make firm their, their knees in the serving and in the circumstances that they find themselves. God, bless them, bless them, bless them. What would they know that in this time of contentment and, and, and even in this, this time where it's just constant serving and they're looking for the next step and they're looking for, for, for kind of the breakthrough to happen, God, God would, it, would it be that you would remind them of your own servant-like heart that in that moment of contentment and serving the way that they're serving, that, that, that there's something of glory being brought to Christ. Christ, you are the servant. So God, I pray, I pray that you would grant comfort to those who are in the waiting. Grant contentment, shield them, protect them from trying to push too quickly or, 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 or get their heart in front of their own feet. God, may it be that they walk according to the impulse of your love, content in you. But God, we do pray that you would bring about the desires of their heart. You would bring breakthrough to their lives because then contentment can be implemented. Jesus, right now, we want to honor you. You are the one who is our rest. You are the one who will ultimately bring us rest and you won't rest until it happens. So Jesus, we honor you. We thank you. We love you. We praise you. We want to turn it all back to you. The fruit of our lips, the praise of our mouths, you are worthy. We bless your name. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.